because there have been some issues with clinicians doing research that, that don't have the background in investigation. I think the biggest concern, and I, I have this concern as well, is if I had, as a clinician, started to do research without getting that additional Master's of Science in Clinical Investigation. And as a clinician without that degree, I would have never really understood what I didn't know. And I, I could have been very much at risk at doing some research that wasn't very rigorous. And so that training that, that I received the Master's of Science in Clinical Investigation really did allow me to produce some rigorous research. Welcome to Clinical Appraisal, a podcast about nursing science with a focus on methodology. I'm your host, Ian Lane. All opinions shared are my own, and none of this information constitutes medical or nursing advice. This podcast is for educational purposes only. If you would like to make a donation in support of my efforts to continue this show, please visit paypal.me forward slash clinical appraisal. If you would like to ask a question or share a comment, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. Today, I had the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Marcy Harris-Hayes. Marcy is a professor of physical therapy and orthopedic surgery at the WashU School of Medicine in St. Louis, and she's a practicing physical therapist on the hip. Marcy has an MPT and a DPT in physical therapy, as well as postdoctoral training with a master's in clinical investigation from WashU, which has afforded her the necessary skills to conduct independent clinical research as a principal investigator in her field. She's a board-certified clinical specialist in orthopedics, a member of several physical therapy organizations, and she has conducted numerous high-impact studies in her field of hip pain. At WashU, Marcy is director of the Rehabilitation Research for Orthopedic Conditions Laboratory, where her research interests revolve largely around finding therapeutically viable, clinically implementable treatments for arthritic and pre-arthritic hip conditions. As WashU faculty and a graduate of their MSCI program, Marcy has also spent a great deal of time being a passionate advocate for the clinically prepared clinical investigator and prides herself on advising students interested in combining their practice-based doctoral training with research, whether that means ushering them toward a postdoctoral fellowship, a PhD, or the MSCI program. Together, we talk about the advantages and disadvantages of such programs for professional doctorates in clinical fields such as nursing and physical therapy. I'm here with Marcy Harris-Hayes. Marcy, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. So can you tell my listeners a little bit about who you are and what your main interests are? Sure. Uh, so I'm a physical therapist uh, first, um, and I'm a professor at Washington University um, School of Medicine in St. Louis. And um, my main interest in my kind of areas of, re of research is specifically musculoskeletal pain, and I'm focused on hip pain in particular, um, and really uh, trying to find best, best ways to optimize rehabilitation for people who have chronic, chronic hip pain conditions. Mm, very cool. And at what point in your career did you become interested specifically in clinical research in this area of specialization? Uh, well, I'll try 
to make it a short story. Um, <laughs> it's a little bit of a long story, but I, I became interested in research and clinical practice um, because I, we, I was continuously told, well, we don't have any research or any evidence to support what we're doing. And so, um, and I felt like what we were doing was, you know, good. People were getting better. And, and, and the more I heard that, the more I interested I got into the research process. And I kind of took a detour through um, clinical practice that surrounded the knee joint and then um, became involved with an, another investigator who was interested in low back pain. Um, mm. And that's when I started to kind of dip my toe um, into doing research. And then I decided, you know what, the hip affects the back, the spine, the hip affects the knee. So that's like the perfect place uh, for me to land. So it was really kind of a, a, a long trip around to get to the hip. Um, but it really was always, always inspired by uh, my clinical practice. That's fantastic. So I'm very interested in your perspective on clinical research and kind of your trajectory and how you got to where you are. But before I jump into some of those questions, can you... Tell us what you're ultimately most passionate about. Is there an ultimate question that grips you and makes you kind of, it kind of gets you up in the morning to do this kind of work? <laughs> there is, you know, and, and it really is focusing on how we can find the best type of rehab for each individual patient. So it's become very clear to me in both my practice and the research that I've done. There's not one way to treat every person that has a hip pain problem. Um, but we really don't know right now how to identify um, the right treatment for the right person. So we kind of try one thing, see how the person responds, and then we try another thing, see how they respond. And so I'm, what I'm really interested in is can we get to that right treatment much more quickly by knowing more about the individual's demographics, anthropomorphics, what kind of activities they participate in, um, all kinds of factors that might contribute to hip pain problems. So, so kind of what drives me is, is how we can really optimize rehab for people with these conditions. One of the things that I'm interested in is that you are a clinical investigator and from the looks of it, a, a productive one. I think I mentioned in my email to you, but I read some of your uh, work on hip pain and I'm interested in pain science broadly um, and the mechanisms of pain and sort of the individual variability in pain and self-management of pain. And so I kind of try to dabble in keeping tabs on a little bit of everything. And um, so I, that's how I came across your work. And I realized that you did not have a PhD. And I was very interested in how that might have happened. And so I kind of took a little bit of a dive into your CV and you have a very interesting background. And so I'd love to talk with you about that. So you do, I don't know if you mind my saying this, but I know you got your master's in physical therapy in the 90s, right? That's right. And the doctor of physical therapy wasn't required. I'm not obviously very well versed in this, but until the 2000s. So when did you decide to do the DPT and why not the PhD? Yeah, that is, I, I could see how my CV would bring many more questions than answers. <laughs> Um, and, and I'll just be honest with you if, you, if you could see me right now, you know, a lot of times people's view career trajectories as a straight line from A to A to B. And I really have kind of taken a very circuitous um, uh, line between where I start and where I began. And I, I'll just, I'll be upfront and honest with you. Part of that is my naivete 
Um, so neither of my parents graduated high school. I'm the first in my family to graduate college, let alone go to graduate school. So I really, I really didn't have a great perspective of kind of the overall academic life, if you will. And so my decisions have all been based on kind of finding new pathways, you know, on the pathway that I currently am on. So, um, I, you're, you are absolutely correct. I got my master's at Northwestern University and came to St. Louis after graduation and started clinical practice here. Very fortunate that I was able to interact with some of the faculty from Washington University's program in physical therapy and got started to learn more about kind of their approach to treatment and how they think about clinical practice. And it really intrigued me and in how I saw what they did to be, um, in some ways similar to what I've learned, but yet very different. And so that got me interested in taking some classes um, that were being offered as a post-professional DPT. So mm. um, I took a couple of classes and I thought, man, I am really learning a lot about critical thinking, um, uh, how you approach diagnosis and treatment management. It just really was very useful. Came on faculty, um, through, you know, I started doing some lab assisting, got to know more faculty and actually came on full-time faculty in 2000. Um, and at that point decided I should go ahead and finish the, the doctoral degree. Um, I was very clinically oriented. Uh, my my uh, position was 50% teaching, 50% clinical practice. And so I really didn't have at that time the desire to do research. Oh, okay. It was really my being involved on faculty, getting to know some of the investigators, and that's what really started to intrigue me about research. Hmm. I think that's important, though, because a lot of people may not... I mean, research is interesting in that if you do like a pretty prototypical undergraduate degree that is very research-heavy, like biochemistry, for example, or physiology, neurobiology, there are certain degree programs or pathways where you get exposure to research very early on, and then some that are adjacent that you just don't. Or maybe you go to a more of a liberal arts university that doesn't have a research focus. And my point, I guess, is that I can imagine a lot of people getting into clinical fields, not even necessarily realizing that they might be interested in research. And then they do something like they do, I don't know, a nurse practitioner degree or a physical therapy degree, and they realize that actually there are these gaps I'm really interested in and there's this whole methodology that I can take and try to answer some of these questions. I think that that might resonate with quite a lot of people. I think there's going to be a cohort of people that will do something like that. They'll get their DPT and realize, like, actually, there's this whole gamut of things we don't know about the, I don't know, ankle joint. And so I guess the first question, based on what you just said that I have, is... So you had been a master's of physical therapy for quite a while before you took those classes at the doctoral level? Uh, actually, I started taking, so I graduated in 96. Now you'll all know how old I am. <laughs> um, and then uh, started clinical practice within about six months, so 97. And I think I took my first course in 98. So I, it okay. wasn't too long and I started taking the courses. I get the sense, and you can correct me if this is wrong, that your master's was so heavily focused on trying to cram in all of the required clinical knowledge, and there was probably a ton of it, that 
when you got exposure to these other classes, what was it that they were bringing in? I know you mentioned the critical thinking. What other pieces did you get exposure to that kind of opened you up to this new world? Sure, sure. And I, so one thing to consider is that there's oftentimes you can learn something while you're in the professional degree program, but until you kind of experience it in clinical practice and you can kind of really apply it, it may not really stick. And so I think there's a little bit of that. So definitely in my um, graduate degree for the master's, um, we definitely were exposed to research uh, approach, um, how you would, you know, evaluate and, and treat a patient with musculoskeletal disease. But then when you get out and you actually start to apply it, then the questions, your own questions kind of come up and you, you approach those questions in a much different way. So I think part of it is just clinical practice um, uh, kind of helps spur those questions. Um, the other thing that really got me interested from the program at Washington University is, is that they are, they have developed and are continually evolving a um, diagnostic system um, that we use to subgroup, pe subgroup people with, with clinical pain problems. So I think it's, the hip ones are a little bit more challenging and would take much longer to explain, but if we talk about um, a, a low back pain problem, and I'm, I'm oversimplifying, someone that has a lot of pain when they bend forward to pick something up off the floor or they sit for a very long time, they might fall into a category that we would call lumbar flexion syndrome. Too much flexion over time repetitively may contribute to a pain problem. Compared to someone who has a standing occupation or works with their arms overhead, um, activities and that tend to have difficulty in those situations, they might be in a lumbar extension syndrome. And we would treat those in very two, those two pain problems in different ways. Um, and they've developed, and the faculty have developed the system across all the different joints. So that's what's really kind of intrigued me because I knew, you can, I knew, you know, different people have different pain problems, but I really couldn't put my finger on it. Now, to me, that was a component that was really interesting to me. Hmm. That is very interesting. And it sounds kind of unique. Like, uh, I don't know that much about the university's system for the DPT, but it sounds like a unique element. I'm interested in the, partly in the perception of your colleagues in academia who went the more traditional path that did not go the circuitous path. Um, before we get into some of the decision trees that you had and kind of how that path emerged, now that you're here, how do your colleagues and peers look at you and the kind of work that you do? Um, do you feel like there's any bias there against you? Talk a little bit about that. That's a complicated question. Um, and I'll tell you, to be honest, over the years, the um, reaction has been quite mixed. Um, and so there, there are some who feel very strongly that to do research, you should go through a traditional PhD program. Um, and Yet there are others who are really excited that you have clinically trained individuals that are moving forward in the research environment. I think the biggest concern, and I, I have this concern as well, is if I had, as a clinician, started to do research without getting that additional Master's of Science in Clinical Investigation. And as a clinician without that degree, I would have never really understood what I didn't know and I, I could have been very much at risk at doing some research that wasn't very rigorous. 
And so that training that, that I received the Masters of Science in Clinical Investigation really did allow me to produce some rigorous research. And, and then kind of added to that, it's so very new in the physical therapy world. So physicians have been doing um, research for a long period of time. And, and as far as funders such as the NIH, I think an MD and a PhD are viewed very similarly. Um, but the DPT, even with the MSCI, is, is, is still kind of on a bit of a learning curve. So initially, I feel like I may have had to really kind of oversell the MSCI and to really try to, to prove, you know, help the funders feel comfortable that they could invest in me. The last few grants that I have submitted my credentials have not been in question. So I feel like we might be turning the corner a little bit in that um, uh, the DPT with this other additional research training is going to be successful. But again, it's still relatively new and and hard to say. Mm, Absolutely. So most listeners will not know what an MSCI is. So I guess we'll start there. Can you tell us what the MSCI degree is? And then I can kind of backtrack and ask about the decision tree. Sure, sure. So MSCI, Masters of Science in Clinical Investigation. Um, our medical school here, Washington University School of Medicine, started this program. And it was really for two groups of people. It was for individuals who were kind of trained in a basic science. So they had PhDs in in bench work, lab science, um, and it was to allow them to help better translate their work into um, human research. So they would get more training in kind of how to do human research. Mm. The second group of people are the clinically trained MDs, PTs, OTDs, who are interested in, in doing more clinical research. And so then it gave, gave, and that's where I would fall, gave me that additional training in research methodology and particularly in how to do research in, within a clinical practice, uh, which has, a, is, has some special and unique features. Okay. So one of the questions I originally had for you, Marcy, had to do with if you knew you were interested in research, why did you choose the DPT and then MSCI over a PhD? But actually, your story kind of clears that up for me. It It's more like you fell in love with the clinical work, and then you realized that there were these things you were interested in trying to solve and knew you had to get this extra training. So I guess um, maybe the the next iteration of that question is why not go back and get a PhD if other people were saying, like, you really need a PhD training? I can tell you, um, I did some basic science work with uh, a neuroscience department at my medical school. I had several PhD faculty advisors tell me, you know, we have all these MD PhDs come through here, and they're not real PhDs because they only do three years. And I always find this so interesting because, to my mind, there's so much of the individual that comes into play and there are some stellar people who didn't necessarily go the traditional path. And and so I'm sure that you got that often, right? What was the decision like for you that you said, you know, I'm really not interested in doing these other four years. I'm going to do these two years instead. Like, what what did that look like? Yeah, so um, that, re- I mean, it really comes down to it was, it was a financial decision at the time. So, um when I realized that I wanted to have my own research agenda. 
So I'm on faculty. I'm working with another investigator, assisting her with her projects. Um, very successful investigator. And at that time, I just I got really interested in pursuing my own questions. And um, I could pursue some of them, you know, in the role that I was playing, but I really couldn't pursue all of them. And at that time, this opportunity, this, this MSCI program was, was being um, started, and my director approached me about it, and she said, hey, are you interested in this? You should check it out. Um, and so right there, the, 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 um, the choice that I have, it had, well, I guess there are three choices. I was going to say there was two. To do a PhD at Washington University Movement Science Program, which is where I would have elected to do the PhD, I would have had to have quit my job and, and be full-time uh, training um, at the university. And then there's no guarantee that I get my job back, right? Um, and so, and I'm very much, we're very much in St. Louis. So there were just a few kind of life decisions that had to be made. I could have done an online kind of a PhD program, but I just, I didn't feel like that was the route that I wanted to go either. Um, and so really this MSCI program was like ideal for me, um, in that it allowed me to continue to work. It took me a little bit longer because I had to take night courses, you know, um, over time. And um, it, it took a little bit longer to do the, to do the research project itself because I just had a short, a small percentage of time protected while I was in the training. But that really was the reason. Um, I do think that it, for a person who knows they want to do research um, and, and the opportunity is available to them, going the PhD route it probably opens more doors I've always, I kind of tell the students that ask me these questions, I say, if you get a PhD, people will pretty much assume that you can, you can do the work and then you have to prove them wrong. If you don't have the PhD, you've got to prove that you can do the work. <laughs> so, it, so it's one of those things where, you know, in a different circumstance, had I known earlier that, that research was the way I wanted to go, the PhD route would have been the route I would have taken. Hmm. But this MSCI really came around at the right time that allowed me to, to pursue the things that I wanted to do. I guess I, I would like to share with you one of my, maybe a pet peeve is a way to think about it. <laughs> uh, one, one thing that I think about often is, why is it the case that an MD and a PhD are considered fairly equivalent in terms of like the NIH's eyes? You said it earlier, it's similarly, although more eloquently, they're viewed similarly in terms of their ability to carry out a project successfully and get funded. And my question is always, why? Because the MD training has no research training formally. And there's a lot of MD students who got research training in undergrad, but having done research in undergrad, it's not the same thing. Mm -hmm. um, I always find that kind of a false equivalency. And then you have these new or rather more novel doctorate programs like the practice doctorates in physical therapy, in nursing. And for example, in the doctor of nursing practice, there's a lot of QI, QA research. And so kind of more on the implementation end of things. So I say that because I kind of wonder why is it the case that the clout that exists there, which I feel is almost like a little bit misapplied, um, <laughs> can't you know, like that, that same kind of respect for the, let me also say that there is an element, having worked with a lot of clinical researchers 
who have the MD only training, a lot of the the really solid MD researchers feel that what they bring to the table is actually different from what the PhD peers bring to the table. They tell me things like, I've built this edifice of clinical expertise in this very niche area that I get to bring to the table and share with my PhD colleagues who are experts in this methodology. And then we are a wonderful team and you know we usually get funded as a team. Why is it that a DPT or a DNP can't have that same level of respect in terms of what they bring to the table? And if they do have this extra research training, is that not sufficient? So this is very long-winded and loquacious, and I guess I'm just interested in your reaction to those thoughts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I So I don't know the answer to that question, actually, but I'm going to speculate. And I really think it is, it's a bit of a function of time. So, you know, MDs have been around much, much longer than PTs. So, and I'm, you know, I'm I'm sure the nursing field's been around longer than physical therapy as well. Um, But like PTs, we were techs in the 40s. So that's Mm. how young our field is. Um, And we had to go through, you know, being at the tech level, then we got a bachelor's degree, master's degree, and now we're at a doctoral degree. Hmm. And um, so I, I just I think it's a function of time in that um, and a function of there's not many of us doing it. So we um, we did a little bit of research. We were uh, investigating the, the possibility of doing a, a, a developing a postdoctoral program for those who are DPT trained. And um, across the United States, there's five DPT trained um, physical therapists who have received NIH funding. And I would say part of that is because a lot of DPT trained individuals haven't applied either. So there, it takes some time of um, getting applications in, showing that you can do good work. And then I think that that will shift. And, and I think I, as I mentioned earlier, uh, based on you know the summary statements of my last few grants, I think that shift is starting to turn. Um, uh, uh, in, but it is a, it, it, it'll be a little bit of a long road. I appreciate you speculating. I know that was a long-winded question. and <laughs> well, it's, it's a great question, Ian, because I, I've struggled with it. Um, and in fact, if you and I had talked right when I started down this pathway, some of those same frustrations I have felt. Mm-hmm. Um, but I feel, I feel like there's a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel. We just got to keep you know chugging towards it. Yeah. Part of the reason that I'm interested in this at all, because I, I, I actually have colleagues and peers who will say, like, you're young, you have all these years of your career, why not just do the PhD? But part of why I care about this is, I can imagine the cohort of people who are interested in research, they have clinical expertise, they're not looking to go into the lab and do bench work, they're interested in learning enough methodology to be a sufficiently properly trained clinical investigator. Mm-hmm. that may not require a PhD other than the fact that it's just been done that way. I feel like, to me, I feel like there are some essential skills that you need, but then what you did in your practice doctorate kind of makes up a portion of what you would spend doing. I mean, I started a PhD before I moved over into the clinical world, 
And what I did for that first year of my PhD program was take classes and read and learn about the field. And I feel like you're doing all of those things in your clinical program too. I feel like what you end up doing with the MSCI is augmenting those pieces that you wouldn't have gotten. And then at the end of that line, I feel like the only thing that stands in your way of being viewed as a principal investigator similar to your PhD colleagues is perception. Um, Does that resonate with you kind of based on your experience at all? You know, it does. And I do think, um, and again, I might be speaking out of turn because I don't know the medical field, obviously, as well as the PT field. But I do think some of these MSCI programs have been initiated because there have been some um, issues with clinicians doing research that that don't have the background in investigation. And, and the one thing about research is that it is expensive. And so if we want to, you know, use our resources wisely, then setting up the most rigorous study is going to be the best approach. And so I think you and I are in agreement in that having a clinical degree gives you, gives you a different perspective than if you had never been in the clinic at all, right? Hmm. Um, and then you're, uh, that, and it also brings you different questions. I do think clinicians tend to come with different questions than maybe someone who hasn't been in clinical practice as well. But I do feel very strongly that that additional research training needs to be there. Do I think it needs that it has to be a PhD? Absolutely not. I think that it, it, you can have a, a a different program that can bring that bring that to you. So I think hmm. I think we're in agreement in that. Yeah, uh, I was. I think so too. I, so <laughs> I've talked to several different people about my ideas about what pathways might exist outside of the PhD, and I can imagine if we had a different perception for that professional who graduated from a clinical doctorate or practice-based doctorate and then wanted to do research, I can imagine extensive mentorship and actual formalized postdoctoral fellowship might suffice potentially. And maybe they get an MSCI, maybe they don't, maybe they write a K award. I mean, I can imagine a series of ways in which they might be able to prove that they could be a successful clinical investigator. What's interesting about that is that they're not seen as viable, but I think something you said resonates, which is it could be that there's just not enough people doing it, and so there's not enough momentum to show, actually, this is viable. So I want to back up, though. In your view, what are some of the pros and cons that stand out for you based on the two pathways, the DPT to MSCI versus the more traditional PhD path. And for those that are listening that don't know this, one thing I do know is that the DPT is now a direct entry professional doctorate. And so there is no MSPT anymore. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, that's correct. So if they wanted the PhD, I guess you guys are forced to do DPT and then PhD. Is that correct? Or vice versa? Well, um, so if you wanted to be a practicing physical therapist doing research, yes, you would do the DPT. Um, there are there are a few programs that have that are DPT PhD um, similar to the MD PhD model. So there are a few programs across the U.S. that do that or do a DPT um, in an MSCI. And in fact, at Washington University's program in physical therapy. Um, are some of our students are doing that actually. So they'll go um, to, through their first two years of the professional program. And then they take a year to do the MSCI and do practical research. And then they come back and they finish their um, DPT. Hmm. So we have maybe one every two or three years, a student will do, will go through that process. 
so advantages or pros and cons that you had um, your original question. I think one of the biggest cons right now in comparing the DBT MSCI to a PhD is, it, is the recognition of universities of that degree. So our university has a very, um, I'm going to call it progressive. I don't know if that's true, but I'm going to call it a progressive uh, situation in that we have an investigator, which is the traditional tenure track. And then we have the clinical track and then we have a research track and the clinical yeah. track is non-tenure, but there's some job security to that. So um, meaning that at a professor level where I am right now, um, I have a five-year rolling contract. So that's some pretty good job security um, yeah. as far as kind of a university setting. However, other universities um, who own, who have just the investigator track and the non-tenure track, um, that that um, it's a yearly contract, and um, the DPT MSCI is may not be recognized for the tenure track in that university. So even though I am getting grants, producing manuscripts providing scholarly work, I would never be able to be appointed to the tenure track on one of those universities. At WashU, I could if I had a little bit of, bit of a different path. The PhD is not a requirement for the investigator track at WashU, but WashU is um, in the minority, I would say, as far as universities. So that's, to me, when you're thinking about career planning and, and the flexibility to move to different universities, that would be a big advantage of the PhD. Everyone recognizes the PhD. Mm. One thing to note as well is that it, it's probably gone without saying, but I'd like to say it for students who don't know necessarily that there's a difference, that we're talking a lot about someone who wants to be a principal investigator answering their own questions, right? So I can imagine in physical therapy, as in nursing, it's similar, where if you wanted to work inpatient at a hospital and be the co-I on a project that another PhD person is running, you could easily do that. You could be the co-PI, and you don't need a tenure-track faculty appointment, and you don't need to be um, whatever the case is, you can assist in research. You can even be, as I say, a co-investigator. But you and I are really talking about that person who really yearns to do their own independent funded work as a PI. And I think that point you made is a really good one. If you want a tenure track faculty appointment or even a faculty appointment at all, some universities won't recognize uh, a clinical doctorate as a faculty. Yeah, it is also true. And I'm glad that you made that distinction about um, you know, wanting to, wanting to have your own line of research that, you know, having this additional research training is a must, whether it's a PhD or an MSCI. You're right, with a DPT degree, uh, I mean, we have plenty of physical therapists at WashU, and that's exactly what they do. They collaborate with a, a, a physician or a PhD trained individual and, and is able to contribute quite a bit, actually, to the research project. So, yeah, this what 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 I'm talking about is leading my own questions and trying to find my own funds. So on that note, I think that's a nice segue. You've mentioned the funding situation a couple times and that it's it seemed a little maybe a lot more stressful kind of at the outset and the beginning of the, of your career and it's gotten better it sounds like. How difficult was it to get your first independent funding? Can you just talk a little bit about your experience with the, the kind of difficulty level? 
Yeah, and I, you know, I talk about the challenges, um, but I have been very fortunate, and part of that is the university I work for. So no one will ever question the environment at Washington University as far as the ability to do research. That's not a problem. Um, and my first kind of getting my own monies, if you will, was a K-12 program, which is an institutional training program, and then they select scholars. And um, this was a program, it's called the CORE program, Comprehensive Opportunities in Rehabilitation Research Training. The leadership of that CORE program, I just, I can't say enough about them in that they're very altruistic and they're all about research and they're all about training people to do good research. And so they really took a chance on me, uh, you know, accepting me into the program, um, which allowed me to then interact with many different investigators, learn about different programs, and really helped my development. Mm. And from there, um, from there, I was able to collect some preliminary data, apply for my own K award. So I applied for a K23, which is a patient-oriented um, research career development award. And I actually hit it on the first go, which is not common. <laughs> Um, but I had this, you know, great group of people that were supportive, had a great environment, helped me write a great grant. Um, and then from then, I've been able to get um, some small R awards. I have yet to hit the big R01. Mm. Um, fortunately, it's not, the limitations have not been the investigator, but getting that, getting that grant written in a way where you can really demonstrate the impact of, mm. of what my work is, that's been, you know, I'm still, still working on that. Right now is where it's been really challenging, and particularly with COVID. Um, oh yeah, basically is kind of shut shut down our, my clinical trial for a few months. Um, we finally got it back up and running again. So there's been other things that have made things a bit more challenging, um, but um, I think I've been really fortunate, and I'm hoping that that will continue for other people that that are DPT trained. We have two others in our university. One has had two RO1s now. So DPT, MSCI, two RO1s, and then one of our junior faculty just got a K, K award. So, so far, so good. That's great. It does, it paints a picture of progress. It also paints a little bit of a picture of maybe you make this decision to go this path knowing in advance it might be a little bit more challenging. Um, and maybe, I don't know what it's like in physical therapy, you know, for for nursing a lot of people will go DNP to PhD and they'll use their scholarly project for their doctor of nursing practice as kind of a launching point for the, you know, fledgling components of their dissertation. I'm not sure if something like that happens in PT or if it's like it's another five to seven years after your DPT, but I can imagine a one year MSCI or a one and a half year MSCI looks very appealing to that person. They may just have to kind of go in with their eyes open and know this might be a little bit, uh, there might be more hurdles to, to leap over right now. But like you're saying, you're really doing a good job of painting this picture, I think, of there are hurdles, but it's there is progress being made. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with that. I think you summarized that quite nicely. And just know that whether it's the PhD or the one-year MSCI, you still haven't learned all that you need to learn. <laughs> once you get out, there's always going to be, you need that next training grant to help you get 
the, the next level of education that you need for the, the projects that you're wanting to pursue. So it, it's, it's, it's not a one and done and, and here you go kind of thing. It's always a learning, uh, learning activity. I want to highlight that actually. Um, and you can tell me what you think about this, Marcy, but there is the, the, there's very much this perception of the PhD as sort of the researcher. What is interesting to me is when you break that down, think about the dissertation, right? You do a dissertation on a topic with a methodology, and then you get out, and just as a kind of a personal anecdote, the trajectory I was on in my PhD originally was to do a mediation analysis of uh, some previously collected secondary data. And um, I would have been very well-versed in latent growth curve analyses, right? (laughs) But that does not mean that I would get out and automatically be able to run a clinical trial. And yet I would have had a PhD. And so that's interesting to me as well, because you as an MSCI trained DPT faculty member, you have this exposure to different methods and you know, maybe your first grant, I don't know what you used, but suppose you use some longitudinal, you know, clinical intervention trial, and then um, the next grant you do something different. And so it, there really is this continual growth, regardless of degree program. And that's kind of one of the things that I'm passionate about showing people. I don't really care if people get a PhD or don't get a PhD. I want them <laughs> to do what's right for them. Um, so what do you think about that? I mean, I, I think I'm, I would agree with everything that you've just said in that, um, that definitely there's a continual learning curve, but that's also true of clinical practice, right? Mm. You don't come out of your entry-level program knowing how to treat every patient. There's always something new to challenge you. So I think what the training does is it, what I hope the training has done is helps you to learn how to learn right? How to find the people who have an expertise that you may not have, how to collaborate. Maybe it's more about navigation, you know, Mm. that that training gives you a base for how you kind of navigate um, the research environment, including kind of culture, uh, which is, you know, a really steep learning curve. (laughs) If you, you know, you've not been around that before. So, um, so yeah, whatever that degree might be and whatever path that you're taking, if you want to be successful, if you're motivated and you're, um, well, just if you're motivated and, you, and you're persistent, you're going to be successful at it, but you definitely are going to have to learn along the way. It's, it's not a, it's, it doesn't become passive after that degree. That's for mm-hmm. sure. Absolutely. So I have only a couple more questions for you. One of the things I'm interested in asking you, it sounds like you're you're obviously very thoughtful and you have a lot of experience. I'm wondering how you think about getting protected time as an MSCI trained investigator. So, I mean, clearly on the, in the back end, if you're funded, you can have protected time. I guess I'm thinking on the front end when you're a trainee. So it might be different with, I know you, you said there's a combined DPT MSCI program, but suppose there's a DPT student who graduates and then goes, you know, I really wish I got this MSCI and goes back. How do you think about getting protected time as a trainee? Is it possible? Is it not possible? Do you have thoughts on that at all? I think it, so anything, I'll just say anything is possible. You have to ask, Hmm. right? And fortunately, when I um, started the MSCI program, uh, as I stated before, I was working with another investigator on her work. And then, 
you know, my director approached me about being a part of this program. And as part of that, she did provide me with like 15% of time for me to work on my project in addition to what I was helping the, the other investigator with. And I've, you know, talked to others since. Typically, if you show some, some promise, um, you have a good plan and you go in and you ask, um, then, you know, you might get that protected time. Um, there's probably some that would say absolutely not. Um, and in that situation, you might have to, you know, kind of do it on your own time so that you could collect some sort of data. You, you, you got to have a little bit of a track record before you go in and ask. But I think if you can, you know, show promise, show a plan, here's, here's what I plan to do, here's what's, what's going to be the outcome at the end. And if you can show how your improvement is also going to be good for the program, so me being a part of the MSCI also helped us connect to the medical school, which was a, a, a nice benefit for our program. So if you can kind of show how your program is going to benefit from you being better at your job, um, then people are more likely to, to give as well. So it's not a guarantee, but you have to ask and you have to go in with a plan. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. I, I do feel like there are several common threads throughout our conversation. But one of the things that I'm hearing from you is you really have to learn how to sell you, what you're bringing to the table. And it's going to last, I mean, your whole career is constantly, it's learning how, how, what's the best way to sell this idea or this, uh, this grant opportunity or this, you know, protected time. That, does that feel accurate to you? <laughs> It's, it's very accurate, and I'll just tell you, most people that go into go into getting degrees in serving people, we're not really good at selling ourselves. So you know, true. we do our work, and we you know we, we we just expect to do a good job, and we'll be recognized. But nope, sometimes you have to like toot your own horn and make sure others know you know the good work that you're doing. You got you have to get over yourself to sell yourself so that you can get that good program moving. That's a very good point. So um, is there anything that I glossed over or didn't ask you that you think would be really important to touch on? I don't think so. I, I made a note halfway through our, our, our conversation, but you asked a question that brought it up. So um, I think we've hit anything that I would want others to know, we've hit all of those topics. You probably have guessed I've had a lot of students in my office ask me this DPT versus PhD question. And so I'm really, as many people that can kind of learn from from what I do know, Yeah, I just get excited about that. <laughs> yeah. I imagine that there's probably a good amount of overlap. I guess the difference with nursing now is, and I don't know if you're familiar with the nurse practitioner in physical therapy now that it's a direct entry program, mm -hmm. I I don't think there is even allowed to be any master's level programs. Out I don't there, think right? so. I think they're. I think they're all transitioned. Okay, that's what I thought. So you know, in your field, like if somebody wants to be a practicing PT, they have to get a DPT now. In nursing, they don't, and so you can go from your master's level nurse practitioner to a PhD. And what mm -hmm. they've done in our field is they've created a DNP route for somebody who wants to be a master clinician. And what they're trying to do is turn it into a, you're going to just translate the evidence into practice. And then a PhD route, which is you're going to generate the evidence. To me, yeah, that's a false dichotomy in a lot of ways. But importantly, what I see is there's a need for that translator 
to know mm-hmm. how to translate, which actually requires asking and answering clinical questions because you could be a generator of knowledge as a PhD. You might find that something is efficacious in some, I don't know what, I know maybe for, uh, for hip pain, you might say, we went into the lab with this very specific group of people and based on the inclusion and exclusion, we tried this thing for 12 weeks and it seems to work. Let's apply this to a broader population of people, a broader age group in other hospital systems. And then you need somebody to kind of lead the charge on implementing this new protocol. I'm just making this all up. I have no idea how relevant this would be. Yeah. And that person, whoever's leading that, if it's not the same research team, they have to know how to ask and answer those same types of questions on that next level. And I think from a quality control perspective, if they want the doctor of nursing practice to take and implement these pieces of evidence, that person should have some extra training in being able to actually do implementation research. So this is where I'm coming from is I want, if they really want to see that happen, they can't make the the false dichotomy of this person's not generating any knowledge because in the implementation process, inherently you're generating knowledge. But you also yeah. have to know how to do those things. And yeah. I think they're afraid of collapsing the two back into each other again. They're trying to maintain this dichotomy between the two degrees. And it just it's a little bit messy because of the history of nursing. And But it's interesting because there doesn't seem to be the same kind of controversy. Because I feel like the PhDs in physical therapy all tend to be like, biomechanists and people who like sort of come from this background of like, I just want to know how this movement pattern, you know, affects this thing. No, yeah. Well, actually, I think there probably there are more similarities than dissimilarities because um, you're right. PhDs tend to be doing more lab work, bench work, um, or, or, or educators that aren't doing research at all. That's mm. probably a higher percentage of our PhDs. Is it really? Faculty. Is that they're they they are brought on with the, the the guys that they might be doing research, but then they have a full teaching load, so there's just no chance that they can do research. And then, like in our program, our DPT program, I mean, we very much want our students to come out as consumers of research and and implement it but i think you're probably ahead of the curve when it comes to implementations so that's a whole brand new science right mm. yes. is implementation science so none of us are good at that <laughs> even those of us in that field aren't very good at that yet <laughs> interestingly the grant i'm writing right now the third aim is all about implementation so oh cool we have a really good implementation group here at washu so i'm partnering with them you know, again, finding people who have expertise that I don't have. Um, yeah. So we're going to see, we'll see how that goes. Yeah. It's interesting. There's a cadre of PhD prepared people in our field as well that tend to gravitate toward just the large teaching load. And so there does seem to be an overlap there. I would also say, and, and I don't know if you feel this to be true in the PT world, but one of the things I often hear in, as a kind of criticism to my my perspective that we need some, even a small proportion of, maybe 10, 15, 20%, maybe even that's too large, of DNP prepared nurse practitioners to have research method skills and be able to lead teams as a PI, they'll say things like, well, they could just partner with a PhD and the PhD could run the research and they could be the clinical expert that advises that research. That sounds great except 
there are not enough PhDs with the same interests that can jump mm-hmm. on board. And they're not enough, there's not enough bandwidth for all these people. You know, if you're, if you're a PhD and you're trying to, in your world, maybe your goal is to just look at some very niche aspect of hip biomechanics, you're not necessarily interested in or have the bandwidth to do the clinical implementation. And you might be a valuable resource to bring on board. But having that DPT trained in extra research methods, that person might be perfect to lead that team. And my yeah. my mind is also a scalability thing and a sustainability thing. Let's get these people trained. If they want to be trained, they might as well have those skills. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I, yeah. And so I, I agree with you. I think um, finding two people that, that are going to want to answer similar questions and not get in each other's way it can happen, but it's, it's, there's a lot of barriers to that. Mm. Um, and so those people that are, have PhD, they have training and they have scholarly work as a part of their promotions process. They have to be productive and they're going to try to stay as focused as possible, uh, rightly so. And so they may not be as interested in some of the, the, they're maybe all about mechanism. Mm. Why does it work? Whereas we're interested in, does it work in the real world? I don't care right. why it works. Does it work in the real world? Yep. And so you're right. Trying to get them to get the two together can be a bit of a challenge. It can happen, but it can be a bit of a challenge. So I, I agree with you. And I, I think it just, it seems like for the big, the big picture, if you definitely, if you look at medicine, they definitely value a clinical investigator. And so, and, and it sounds like nursing does similar to what PT does in that we try to model our decisions based on how the medical field has done it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, we're a little behind. So we got to, you know, we're playing a little bit of a catch up. So yeah. um, I, I definitely agree that clinically trained individuals with additional research training can do some really fine research. So Looking back on your path, your trajectory, do you have any regrets about the path you took or would you have done anything different if you could go back and do it over again? It's a hard, so knowing what I know now, um, knowing that I was going to be interested in research, I would be tempted to say that I would do the PhD sooner and, and do the PhD but at the same time, I, I don't think I would in that my clinical practice was really important for me to understand what I wanted to study um, and what I, what, what I would be afraid that I might have done if I'd have gone you know, straight from school, graduate school to PhD is that I might miss the person that comes with, the sign, with doing the research. Um, I don't know if that, that made sense. It does. I mean, what I'm hearing is, you know, I imagine this sort of uh, multi-world uh, scenario where younger Marcy Harris Hayes goes and, you know, goes right to the PhD and maybe doesn't see the, you know, that cohort of hip pain people that spurred off your entire trajectory from there. I mean, would you have had the same clinical exposures, experiences, and expertise you have now that lead your research and lead your grants and really carry you through this career as an investigator, it's hard to say. And um, 
And even if you had exposure to some of the ideas, if you didn't have this base, I feel like, and obviously I'm biased because I do think that there's something critical that the clinician brings to the questions that inform mm-hmm. the research. Does that sound like it maps yeah, on at all? Yeah, yeah that's, exact, that's exactly the fear that I would have um, because I, I'm not very creative. And, and, you know, being a scientist, you got to be a bit creative. And, and I think getting out in, clinic, in clinical practice allowed me to learn more that I could at least ask different questions, whereas coming straight out, I don't know that I, I probably would have done whatever my uh, mentor did and tried to <laughs> continue with that. So it, I, I might have been a little bit more limited in my in my questions, yeah. Okay. And uh, so my last question for you, what advice do you wish that you could go back and tell yourself? What do you wish someone had told you back when you started, now that you know what you know now? You know, this is this has a little bit to do with research, but probably as much to do with life and with academics as well. I really came in to academics with kind of a fixed mindset. I don't know if you're familiar with the fixed versus a growth mindset uh, ideas, uh, but kind of coming in with this Either you know it or you don't know it, you know, afraid to be vulnerable, ask too many questions kinds of a thing. And, and my experience on faculty at WashU, working with students, working with our, an amazing faculty, has really taught me the, the benefit of being vulnerable, asking the dumb question, and not being afraid to be wrong, right? And then moving on to the next thing kind of a thing. So I think kind of if I had learned more about kind of this growth mindset, being able to be vulnerable and ask questions and, and to learn more from that, learn from failure kinds of things, um, I think I would have, I don't know that I'd been any more successful, but maybe a little less stressed. <laughs> uh, still very important. Yeah, yeah. So if, if your listeners have not heard the growth mindset, look that up. It's really, it's really um, fascinating. Marcy, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate you taking the time. This has been great. Well, Anne, this has been fantastic. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Clinical Appraisal. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please share this channel with your friends in healthcare and review the show on your favorite listening app. If you'd like to donate to support the show, please visit paypal.me forward slash clinicalappraisal. And if you'd like to ask a question or share a comment, or if I've reviewed a paper you are an author on and you would like to join me for an episode, please email me at clinicalappraisal at gmail.com. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you'll join me again next time.